with our series, the title of which is on the screen and on the front cover of the notes you should have received on the way in, Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. You will need some notes to follow along, and Larry has them here. We'll get into those notes in just a bit. Here are some things that are coming up. This Saturday is the next Newcomer's Brunch at our house. If you've never been to one of our brunches, we would love to have you this Saturday at 10 a.m. at our place. But we need to know tonight if you're coming so we know how many to make food for. Uh, So you can let us know a couple of ways. You can let me know before you leave. uh, Or my wife, Kim, is right back there. And uh, you can let her know. Or at the information desk. We'll have people at the information desk. Yay. Uh, At the end, which is out in the lobby. Uh, Let them know. And that's probably the best way to do it because they can give you a card that has our address on it and all of that. So do that tonight if you're planning to come. That's this Saturday at 10 a.m. And then one week from Friday is the annual Ladies Christmas Social. And I'm told there are literally just a handful of seats left for that. So ladies, if you have not uh, registered for that, then uh, let them know at the information desk that as well, that you'd like a seat and it's first come, first serve. But there are just a handful of the seats uh, left for that. So it's going to be a full house and a great time. That'll be a week from Friday on the 7th at uh, 7 o'clock. And then uh, two weeks from Sunday is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. So that's a Sunday night, starts at uh, 6 o'clock. And the folks who are putting that on had a meeting last night uh, to finalize their plans for it. These are top secret plans, so top secret they haven't told me what they are. But they assure me it's going to be a, a great time. So they've uh, foregone the uh, thing we've been doing traditionally for years, a white elephant gift exchange. Uh, the group has gotten too large uh, to make that logistically possible. So they're doing some other things. And as I say, they're guaranteeing a great time. So make sure you uh, plan to come two weeks from Sunday to the Adult Christmas Fellowship. All right. Evangelism for the faint-hearted. And it's been two weeks since we last met on this. We didn't meet last week because of Thanksgiving. So let me take a little bit to remind you about what we've seen. It's evangelism for the faint-hearted, and evangelism is the process of giving the gospel the good news. But it's called evangelism for the faint-hearted because we have this natural tendency to hesitate to give the gospel. And that's because what makes the gospel good news is it's necessary because of the bad news. So that means when you're giving the gospel, you are also giving somebody bad news about themselves. And very often people don't want to hear that bad news. In fact, most often, unless the Spirit of God has worked upon their heart, they don't want to hear that they're a sinner, that they've offended God, all of that. But that's the truth of the good news. So it We can be faint-hearted about the process of giving the good news because it can involve rejection, uh, even even ridicule, and so we may hesitate to do it. And in addition to that, we have seen that we are going to people with the gospel that the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, three things about. That they know God, that all people were created by the Creator God, And they know this, all creatures made in his image know that they are the products of the work of the creator. They know God, but they don't want to know God. 
sin has caused us to reject what we were made for, namely a relationship with this God. And so we reject him and we don't want to hear about him. If we do hear about him, we want to make him in our image rather than acting as we were made to be in his image. So people know God, they don't want to know God. And then Romans chapter 1 says as well that that then renders people foolish, professing themselves to be wise They became fools. And what the Bible means when it says fools is someone who is not appropriating what they know to be true. So because of sin, people don't appropriate, apply the truth that they know about themselves in relationship to God. And that renders them foolish. And that foolishness shows up in the way the world behaves. And you see it then in the condition of the world. And that's been the case since early in human history and the fall into sin of humanity. So you've got those obstacles. And so therefore there's good reason to be faint-hearted. But despite that, despite the fact that there are these good reasons, reasonable uh, reasons for us not to give the gospel, we should still, there are very and better better reasons for us to be motivated to overcome that faint-heartedness. And we've seen that in previous weeks. And the two major things that should help us overcome that faint-heartedness are the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel. Now, when I say the glory of God, the glory of God means the display of his character. And it is the gospel, we've been reminded, that is the means by which people who have rebelled against God, that would be all of us, but it's through the gospel message that people who have rebelled against God are transformed so that they begin to display the character of God in their lives, which they have otherwise obscured by their sin. So the glory of God, if if the character of God is beautiful to you, then it should motivate you to want to see the display of that character in the lives of the people God has made. And then there's the beauty of the gospel message itself and all of its intricacies, all that it accomplishes. And we took a few weeks to look at that. And we saw that the gospel does six things, that in the gospel, God effectually calls people and regenerates people and justifies people and adopts people into his family and begins the work of sanctifying people and then ultimately in the future glorifying those people. All six of those things are aspects of the gospel, past aspects, present aspects, future aspects of the gospel. So because of that, the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel, we have more than enough reason to overcome our faint-heartedness. And despite the fact that there are these stark differences between the Christian, the believer, and the pre-believer, someone who has not yet come to Christ, I say pre-believer sometimes just to be confident, that the Lord's going to do this work in a person's life and bring him or her to himself. But there are these stark differences between those who have and those who have not. And the Bible speaks to those. It speaks of believer versus non-believer, the church versus the world, light versus darkness, good versus evil. Uh, there are all of these uh, stark antitheses between the world of those who have come to Christ and those who have not come to Christ. There is a sense in which there is an us and them. 
Now, it's not a superior us and them. I'm better than you are. No, I'm better off than you are by the grace of God. But there is this this difference, and it's spoken of very clearly in Scripture. So that difference could be an additional roadblock to us giving the gospel because how are we going to relate? How is someone who has come to Christ and is being transformed by the gospel going to relate to somebody who is not? And somebody who knows God, doesn't want to know God, and is living in a, in a foolish way. But we saw that there are these points of contact between us. The truth is, even the unbeliever is still made in the image of God. And they still have the vestiges of that image of God. The mirrors that we were made to be, that's what the image of God means, that we were made to be mirrors that reflect God back to God. Those mirrors we were made to be, they are cracked, they are fogged, so God's image is obscured, but it's not completely gone. It's effaced, but it's not erased, as my theology teacher used to used to say. So we have that point of contact in the fact that we all have the image of God and... We all live in a fallen world where we all experience the effects of sin, believer and unbeliever alike. So we all have in common the struggles of being sinners and living in a sinful world. So that means that even as a Christian, you can identify with the non-Christian. You still have a points of contact with the non-Christian because you still sin. And I still sin. Even after we come to Christ. And so if we're humble and honest about that, we can say that. We can admit that to the, to the unbeliever. We have a point of contact in our struggle with sin. We have a point of contact as well in our experience of suffering in a fallen world. That bad things happen to Christians and non-Christians alike. And contrary to the charlatans, the people who lie on television, who tell you that if you're a Christian, you have enough faith, it all goes well with you. That's a lie. The Bible teaches that fallenness affects everybody. Sickness affects everybody. Disease affects everybody. Death affects everybody. And so we have that in common as well. And those become points of contact for us then to give the gospel. Because when we go through that suffering, we should go through that suffering and experience it in a different way. We have many of the same kind of problems. But we should experience those problems differently because we have Christ, because we have his Holy Spirit, because we have his word, because we have his people. That then allows us to be light in darkness. So you have these points of contact. Well, how do we then proceed? How do we proceed in giving the gospel with all of those factors involved? Two weeks ago, on pages 22 and 23, we saw this formula back on page 22. And if you haven't been here for previous weeks, that set of notes starts on, is it page 22? So that set of notes, that means there have been 21 pages prior. And you, we have those on our website. So if you go to cbctrenton.com and you click on that image on our website, the one that says Evangelism for the Fainthearted, that'll take you to a list of the previous weeks. And the PDF is uh, next to the audio for each of those weeks. But on page 22, we have this 
formula that we saw two weeks ago that high potency, and the notes go on to explain that that potency comes from being salt and light in the world. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. We talked about what that means. That high potency that comes from being salt and light plus close proximity, that is being in close uh, uh, geographic relationship to those that we're trying to reach with the gospel, being around people who are unbelievers, close proximity, plus clear communication, communicating clearly the truth of the gospel message with our lips and with our lives results in maximum impact. So that formula is HP plus CP plus CC equals MI. And then page 24 is where we left off two weeks ago. So here are some of the things we should do. We should, Colossians 4 at the top, we should establish redemptive relationships. Seek to intentionally establish relationships with people who need the gospel for the purpose of reaching them, being God's tool to reach them with the gospel. And you make these contacts with people that you know, you used to know, that you want to know. You live a life of credibility in front of them so that your life is not a hindrance to the message but complements the message. You communicate by giving the gospel in personal witness, by extending invitation to events, to read the Bible together, to come to church so that they can hear more truth, and then you pray in the ways listed there. We left off at the bottom of page 24, the gospel presentation. The primary means of sharing the gospel is through the network of contacts that God has provided to us. That's called relational evangelism. And it's a process rather than an event. That is, it normally involves several steps before an opportunity for clear verbal witness can be given. So I said two weeks ago in reading that, that you should not feel like you're a salesperson that has to be in a hurry to close the sale and have somebody sign on the dotted line. But rather with confidence, you go forth, we go forth, knowing that God is at work in this process. God is at work in the hearts of the people that he is saving. And that He, we are simply tools in his hand, giving the truth verbally, but also living the truth with our lives. And that may take years in the life of a relationship with someone. But you pray about that. And in God's good time, he's the one who opens up the heart. But nevertheless, a verbal witness must, at some point, be given. That is, it's not enough to just say, I'm living Christ in front of them. I also need to look for opportunities to tell them who Christ is. And that they need Christ. And here's why they they need Christ. And then invite them to, to trust Christ. That brings us then to page 25. Too often evangelism, again, that's the process of sharing the good news, is reduced to a one-size-fits-all approach. However, a survey of evangelistic encounters in the Bible shows a different emphasis depending on the background of the audience, the background of the person or persons to whom the gospel is being given. Now, notice that 
After the word audience there, there's a footnote. And down at the bottom of page 25, it says in footnote 2, the requirements for salvation are always the same, faith and repentance. So it's always the same for everybody that if they're going to come to Christ, if they're going to have a relationship with God that no one comes into the world with, if that's going to be established, then every person is going to have to express faith and repentance. Faith means belief. It's a synonym. Faith, belief. Repentance, the word literally means a change of mind. And as it's used in the Bible, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Faith and repentance. So it's always involves faith and repentance. However, that footnote, many people tend toward either or rather than both and. The sensitive evangelist should emphasize that which lacks in the understanding of the unbeliever. So it's always going to be that. It's always going to be all of the components of the gospel message. But there are emphases for certain people and other emphases for different people. And I'm going to try to illustrate that. Top of page 25. For instance, when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he confronted the man's self-sufficiency by emphasizing his need to submit all things to the Lord. Now, you all remember that story in Matthew chapter 19. The Bible says that this young man came to Jesus and asked this question. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, if you took a one-size-fits-all approach to giving the gospel, then if you're Jesus and somebody comes and says that to you, you immediately go into your routine. Well, here are the four spiritual laws. Well, here's the Romans Road. Here are the two questions from Evangelism Explosion. And by the way, all of those have their uses. I'm not beating on them. I'm just saying that one-size-fits-all approach means that's the mentality people have. A door opens up and immediately you go into your routine. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus addresses this guy in a way that particularly puts his finger on his special point of deficiency. That... He has an understanding of himself that's too good. And Jesus immediately puts his finger on it. I mean, right there in the question, this guy thinks he's too good. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's the answer to that biblically? What good thing can anybody do? Nothing, right? But this guy doesn't think that. This guy thinks, oh, yeah. I just need to know what it is. Just tell me. I can do it. Way too confident, way too cocky, spiritually speaking. And so Jesus' answer seems really weird. But in fact, he's putting his finger on the guy's problem. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? So Jesus has immediately focused attention on this issue of who is good. 
And he's now going to put the zinger in to show this guy, it ain't you. Why do you call me good, Jesus asks. And then Jesus states, there is no one good but God. Well, do you see how Jesus has masterfully just turned that around? This guy has come absolutely full of himself. Just tell me what to do. I can do it. I've got the ability. And Jesus is saying, you don't have the spiritual ability to do this because you would have to be good. And here's your problem. You're not. There's only one who's good, and that's God. But just to make sure you get the point, young man, you know the commandments. Keep the commandments. And he says, the young man says, got them. Got them all. Kept them all. And Jesus says, well, good. Then go and sell your possessions and come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sorrowful because he had much wealth. And you see what Jesus did there? He put his finger on at least two of the commandments, which give rise, frankly, to all of the rest that this young man did not keep. You shall have no other gods before me. Did this guy have another god? This is money. And Jesus would say, on another occasion, you cannot serve both God and money. You have another God, and you shall not covet. And so this guy has broken these two commands, from which, frankly, as I say, all of the other commands flow. And so Jesus addressed him at the point of his need. He emphasized a particular thing to this young man, that you're not good enough. But then, on the other hand, in that paragraph, when the terrified Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he could do to be saved, they replied a different way. They didn't say, what do you think, you're good? They didn't do the same thing Jesus did. Even Jesus in his other encounters. Remember, he encountered in John chapter 4 a woman at a well. And when he talks to that woman at the well, he points out, her sin to her. But here's a woman who tries to change the subject because she's convicted by that. You've had five husbands. Uh, you've lived with five men and the one you're with now is not your husband. And she's like, okay, I'm nailed. She shows He shows her her sin. She's convicted by it. And Jesus takes a particular approach with somebody who recognizes their sin as opposed to a self-confident person like the rich young ruler. And now with the Philippian jailer. You remember the story. Paul and Silas have been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. God causes an earthquake to come so that the doors to the cells are, are opened. They're released. The, the jailer wants to kill himself because his life's over now anyway because I've let all these prisoners get out. And they say, don't, don't do that. Don't take your own life. And the jailer says, well, what shall I do? And they say simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What this guy needs to understand is that his hope is not in his job, is not in his ability. His hope is in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, all of these approaches... 
That you could multiply this over and over again. All of them are the same good news message, the same gospel message. They involve ultimately all the same points, but different emphases depending on who it is you're talking to and their understanding or lack of understanding of the gospel. So with that, page 25, following is a suggested outline for use in presenting the the gospel. Now, as we go through this, understand that the order of these may change depending on who it is you're dealing with. I mean, you may, instead of starting with talking about God, you may actually encounter somebody who's in the midst of their misery, the consequences of sin. And so you talk to that person from that starting point. I've had occasion to do this many times over the years with people. You know, on extreme cases, you visit someone in prison. Well, here's a person who's in misery. The consequences of sin have affected them in a very clear manner. Or someone who is involved in substance abuse. Or someone who has, uh, someone who has, uh, gone through a, a divorce. And so their family has, has broken up. They're in the midst of some kind of suffering, some kind of misery. And especially if it's a suffering and misery that they've contributed to. But it may be suffering that they didn't contribute to. Uh, they've had a tragedy occur in their life. They, they lost a child or something. And so that might be your starting point. To talk about why things like this happen. Why is it like this? Why is your life like this? Is this the way your life was supposed to be? Or why do bad things happen? Why has the world fallen the way it is? And it gives you an opportunity to talk about sin. So you would talk about sin first. And you would talk about the fall first. And then talk about God. And how sin only has any meaning as it's related to God. And that the reason all of this happens is because we've turned our back on, on God as a, as a race, as the human race. So you might start with their misery, that is the consequences of sin, or their arrogance. It's somebody who's ignoring God. And you try to deftly, kindly, but point out to the person that in the midst of everything you've got going on, where does God fit into this? God, oh yeah, I believe. I've had this happen a lot of times. You probably have too. Oh yeah, I believe. As if, but look, oh yeah, I believe. Oh yeah, that guy. God's an afterthought, if a thought at all. So you start there to then talk about why that in itself then is a core issue that describes the problem that needs to be solved And the solution is the gospel. So my point is, it may not always be in this order. It depends on the person and the circumstance that they are in. And further, we spent several weeks, as I said a bit ago, looking at all of these aspects of the gospel, six of them, 
the effectual call and regeneration and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. We looked at all of that, but as we look now here at what it is you communicate to somebody when you're giving them the gospel, you're not getting, you're not unloading all that on them. You're not using the word regeneration with anybody. You're not using the word justification with, with anybody. They don't know what that means. So that's not going to help them. No, what they need to understand is they're going to need to come to a point of faith and repentance. And in order to bring them to that point, they need to understand these things. So that's what this outline represents. The components that need to be understood and communicated, but depending on the flow of your conversation, the person that you're dealing with, they may be in in a different order. All right. First is God the loving ruler and creator. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made it, and he made us to rule and care for the world under his authority. This is what a person needs to understand. You have Revelation chapter 4. You have Acts chapter 17. Revelation 4 is the end of human history. And the Apostle John, who wrote the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation, was given this vision by God of what it will be like in the end. And as God has accomplished, finally, his purpose for making humanity, and he has has a redeemed humanity now that's been remade into his image, this is what they are doing. They are saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will, they were created, and they have their being. So it's just restating the truth of Genesis chapter 1 all the way at the beginning. God made the world and he's the loving ruler of it and he made us to rule and care for it. Then in Acts chapter 17, you have the Apostle Paul standing before a group of Athenian philosophers in Athens, Greece. And he gives the gospel to them and he begins his gospel presentation by saying the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now, notice when Paul does that and he starts his presentation with God, with these pagan philosophers, he's assuming what Romans 1 says. They know God. Remember, they know God, don't want to know God. He's assuming they know God. That's why he can come and say, the Lord God made heaven and earth. And he can start there. So that's always a place that you can start. Not may not always be the place you do start, but it's always a place you can start because people know God. God as creator emphasizes his ownership and his independence from his his creation. So remember, when you bring up God, that people know God and they can't live without assuming God. Now, as you talk about God, whether at the beginning of your communication of the gospel or later after you've talked about someone's condition and their sin, but when you start to talk about the true and living God, someone may say, well, how do I know your God is the right God? Right? So how are you how are you going to know <clears throat> how how do we know what God is like We've already answered how we know that God is 
We know God is by virtue of creation and the conscience that he's given to all of his image bearers. That's Romans 1 and 2. You know that God is simply by virtue of being a creature. You have a creator. And by conscience, you know that there are things that are right and wrong. Therefore, there's a lawgiver. That's Romans 1 and 2. You know that God is by virtue of nature, but how do you know what God is like? And the answer to that is, and I'm telling you this so you can tell others when that question comes up. The answer is, in order to know what God is like, God has to tell us. Otherwise, we can all just make it up. Otherwise, we can all just roll our own God. And that's what most people do. You know, I like to think of God as... Have you ever heard people do that? I'd like to think of God as, you know, not to be unkind, but who cares what you would like to think of God as? Right? I mean, I've joked about this. I mean, I would like to think of myself as tall, dark, and handsome. But who cares what I would like to think of myself? It is what it is. Okay? And so... God is going to have to tell us, and then that brings you to Scripture. God has communicated. God has communicated to us about himself in his, in his word. So there's God. And then there is humanity in rebellion. And, of course, that's the issue of sin. Clearly, when we look at the world, we can see that things are not the way they should be. So since people have a natural God awareness, and you know that with whomever you're speaking, they have a natural God awareness. Because they're made in the image of God, they were made to be aware of God. Because of that, you can ask, is this the way it should be? Or you can ask, why is it this way? Because they've got this natural God awareness, which gives them then the notion that there's something wrong. That it cannot have been designed this way initially. There's something that's amiss. Something has gone awry. So when we look at the world, we can see that things are not the way they should be. And you can have conversations with people about that. Why are things the way they are? Why are things in your own life, in my life, the way they they are? And it allows you to talk about sin and how that's contrary to the character of God. This is because... We all reject God as ruler by trying to run our lives without him. So the answer to the question is, why is it the way it is? It's because we've rebelled against God, and this is the consequence. We now live in a world that's in rebellion against God, and all of us contribute to that rebellion. Bottom of page 25, Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. And have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, when you talk about humanity and rebellion, if you're going to be an effective evangelist and see the myriad of opportunities that are available to give the gospel, if you're going to see that, then you're going to have to avoid the mistake of thinking that humanity and rebellion simply refers to the people who really have delved into sin foot long. But rather it refers to everybody, even people who look like they're living relatively prosperous and 
peaceful lives. See, one of the mistakes we make when we talk about humanity and rebellion, I mean, we think of, you know, people that are gang members and people who are just living wanton lifestyles. You know, who fits into humanity and rebellion? That would be everybody, wouldn't it? That would be your neighbor in your middle-class neighborhood with well-manicured lawns who goes to work every day and pays their taxes and rakes their leaves, uses their leaf blower without blowing their stuff on your lawn. That's good. So it's that kind of person that's in rebellion against God. But the thing is, they don't, of course, they don't see that. Now, the person who's the gang member, the person, they know that. They see that. They're flaunting that. So there are some people who are, I say at the top of page 26, who rebel quietly by just ignoring God. And others rebel more visibly by doing things that everyone recognizes as, quote, sinful. But either way, it is just as much rebellion against God, whether we notice it or not. And see, if you don't get that, then you won't think that your neighbor or your coworker, your family member needs Christ as much as that person who's in the throes of the consequences of sin. One consequence of thinking that way, thinking in that sort of dichotomized way, they're really bad sinners and then there's you know everybody else who needs a little tweaking. One consequence of that is, I see this a lot, like you can go down to you know, some of the worst parts of Detroit and in fact, there are a lot of, there are a lot of churches right now, like starting churches in Detroit is kind of a, a big thing now. And I'm very happy about that. I mean, I'm very happy that there are churches planted in Detroit and all of that. And there's some good churches that have been started. Thank the Lord. But as I talk to, and I have, I've talked to a number of people. I've talked to some pastors who have done this. There's this sense that the people in Detroit need Jesus somehow more than other people. Because of how bad it is. But is that really true? It's not the case. They need Jesus desperately. But it's not because of poor conditions or any of that. Spiritual poverty exists in your neighborhood. Even though material poverty does not. So we need to see people as they are in all of us in rebellion against God. So what's God going to do about that? Number three, God won't let people keep on rebelling forever. God cares enough about us to take our rebellion seriously and to call us to account. God's punishment for rebellion is sin and, or excuse me, is death and judgment. This is just a total aside, but when I see the word judgment there, do you see the word judgment has only one E in it? J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T. Have you guys seen the signs for Planet Fitness? And it says judgment-free zone. There's an extra E in there. It's spelled J-U-D-G-E-M-E-N-T. And this drives me crazy. When I see the billboard for a judgment-free zone. And they have this all over the place. And 
They've been informed that you've been spelling it wrong for years. And they keep spelling it wrong. So, I for one am protesting against Planet Fitness. This is the reason I don't exercise. If you can't spell, I'm not using your equipment, okay? So this is my rebellion against those guys. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. This might sound hard, and some people don't like to believe that God could feel so strongly about the way we rebel against him. But justice isn't justice unless it brings sin to account. It's wrong simply to turn a blind eye. Now let's talk about that for a minute. It's wrong simply to turn a blind eye. Okay, so there's sin and we've rebelled against God, but what about the harsh punishment? I mean, what is up with that? Why why that? Why hell? Why if someone rejects Christ, is there eternity in what my theology professor used to call the eternal penitentiary of the damned. I mean, that's quieting, isn't it? That's sobering. So why? Here's why. When it says in that last sentence, when we say it's wrong simply to turn a blind eye, well, what makes it wrong? Why can't God just turn a blind eye? Why can't God just say, all right, all's forgiven? And I'll answer it, but I'm asking you to think about that. Why can't God do that? And we even ask the question, why can't God do something? That may raise a flag for you right away. Is there anything God can't do? And the answer is yes, there are things God cannot do. And it's a good thing that there are things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. It's not that God just does not lie. God cannot lie. Why can't God lie? Because it's contrary to his nature. So there are things that God cannot do. Hear this now. Nothing constrains God from outside of him that keeps him from doing what he wants to do. So he can do anything that's consistent with who he is. But he cannot do anything that's contrary to who he is. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. And he cannot leave sin unpunished. Why? Because that would be unjust. And God's nature is that he is just. His holiness requires accountability for sin. So when you ask or when others ask you, okay, there's rebellion, I see the effects of sin, I know I sin myself, but why the severe punishment? It's because of the nature of God. His holy nature requires. It's not just that God does punish sin, God must punish sin. And because sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God, guess what? The punishment is an infinite one. The punishment actually fits the crime. If you understand how heinous the crime of sin, rebellion against God is.
God won't let people keep on rebelling forever. Well, okay. We're in a pickle now, aren't we? I mean, there's God. He made the world. We've rebelled against this God who made the world and his purpose for which he made us to rule it on his behalf and for his glory. So therefore, we have sinned. We suffer the consequences in our lives for that sin. And those consequences will be eternal because the sin is against an infinitely holy God. So what's the solution? Middle of page 26. Jesus is the man who dies for rebels. So there's our problem, but there's God's solution. And that solution is in Jesus. God loved the world so much that he sent his son, the man, Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. So who did God send? Yes, Jesus. But who is Jesus? Let's remind ourselves as to who that is. Jesus is God. God the Son came to earth. And what we celebrate next month, one month from now, at Christmas then, is not the beginning of his existence when he was born in Bethlehem. It's not the beginning of his existence. It's the beginning of his mission. He came to earth. He was born into the human race. He was raised as a human. He lived as a human. And he died as a human for humans. Because he was God, he had no sin. And because he had no sin, that sacrifice, the sacrifice of God the Son come as man, was an infinitely valuable sacrifice. So God must punish sin. God must judge sin. But here's the good news. God punished our sin in Jesus. So he satisfied his justice in Jesus. So now the payment has been made for you by Jesus so you don't have to make it yourself forever. Jesus is the man who dies for rebels. He obeyed God completely. He was the one man who deserved no punishment, yet by dying on the cross, he took our punishment and brought us free forgiveness. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So this is the work of Jesus. And his death on the cross was effective only because it was preceded by his perfect life. The death of Jesus is not the end of the story. Before he died, Jesus claimed that he would come back from the grave after three days. At the time, nobody believed him, but then Jesus is the risen ruler. God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins and raised him from the dead. Jesus conquered death and he now gives new life. One day, he will return to judge the world. And that's what Philippians 2, 2.9 says. In fact, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, you see there. We have it starting as God exalted him to the highest place. That verse actually starts with another word. It starts not with God exalted him. It says, therefore God exalted him. And the therefore is actually important. 
because it connects verse 9 of Philippians 2 with what precedes it. And what precedes it is a description of the death of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, because he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, therefore, God has exalted him. And so God raised him, God the Father raised him from the dead, signifying that God the Father was pleased with the perfect life and death of the Lord Jesus for his people. And he's become then the risen ruler. By rising from the dead, Jesus proved once and for all that he did indeed have all the power and authority he claimed he had as the Son of God. And then that leaves us with our options. Now, the death of Jesus uh, shows us the work of Christ on our behalf. And his resurrection shows that God the Father was completely satisfied with that work and therefore has exalted him. And here's what else it shows. The resurrection of Jesus shows, friends, the uniqueness of Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus. Every other would-be Savior, every other would-be Messiah, every other rival to Jesus is dead. And Jesus is alive. His resurrection shows his uniqueness. That question will come up sometimes, right? Why Jesus? Because Jesus is alive. Because his resurrection And as a matter of fact, he's the only one who even claims, Christianity is the only one who even claims to have. So you've got, you know, Muhammad's dead. Nobody claims Muhammad's alive. Muhammad's claimed to be a great prophet, but he's dead. Buddha is dead. Jesus is alive. Shows his uniqueness. It leaves you with two ways then to live. There's our way, reject God as a ruler, try to run our own lives our own way. The result is we're condemned by God. We face death and judgment. Or there's God's way, submit to Jesus as our ruler, rely on his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And the result of that is we're forgiven by God and given eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. All right, that's the gospel message. Now, how you present that, as I say, is going to depend on the flow of the conversation, where the person's understanding is, but those are the components of the gospel message. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at conversations with people about the gospel, different kinds of people that you give the gospel to. Um, We might have a little bit of time tonight to start that, but if you're going to Witness to a Roman Catholic friend, family member, how do you do that? If you're going to witness to someone who's an adherent to Islam, how are you going to do that? So we're going to, we're going to talk about how to start the conversations and then how to address particular, particular people. But for now, what's next? Well, if the person or persons you're talking to prefers to think more about the points you presented, then recommend that they read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. And I would say, ask them if they would be willing to go through that with you. Would you be willing to meet once a week or once every other week? And let's read through the Gospel of Mark together.
or the Gospel of John together. And, and part of the reason you're doing that, friends, is those are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So those are two of the Gospels. And the Gospels are a particular category of the books of your New Testament. They're the ones with all the red letters in them, if you have a red letter edition. Why? Because they deal with the life and ministry of Jesus. And so they deal with who he was and they deal with what he did. So one reason you would then ask someone, hey, would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? Or reading it yourself, but would you like to do that together? It's an effective way to bring the gospel to someone. And then you do that, that's going to raise then questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And each of the gospels, all four of them, so John and Mark included, all include the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus at the end. So it gives this person then this full understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And the reason it's really good to get somebody reading the Bible is this. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that God's word, the word of God, is sharp. It's quick. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. You guys remember that? So it's alive and it's powerful. And the word of God can accomplish more than you or I will ever be able to accomplish in our presentation. So asking somebody to read the Bible and being willing to read it with them. If the person's ready to submit their life to God's rule, instruct them on praying a simple prayer in their own words, asking God's forgiveness for ignoring and rebelling against him, Ask God to help him submit to Jesus as ruler and rely on Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. And from that point on, it's a matter of living out the new way of life day by day. But you remind the individual they're not on their own. God will be with him all the way. God will keep teaching him as he reads the Bible. God will listen and help as he prays. God will help him to change and to live his way, and God will provide people to encourage him along the way as he meets with other Christians. That's where getting a new convert involved in God's church is important for them to be discipled, for them to grow in the Lord then. All right, so that's what's next. All right, so who next? Get started by taking the following action items. Identify three people with whom to share the good news. So I'm encouraging you all to do that. Identify three people going back to page, I think it was 24, where we said as you establish these redemptive relationships, there's people you know, people you used to know, people you'd like to know. Think of three people in any of those categories that don't know Jesus. And then commit to reaching those three people through praying, Lord, open doors, for the, the gospel in the life of this person. You're not going to come in and beat anyone, or I should say don't go in, and I hope you're not, and beat anyone over the head. But Lord, open doors for conversation about you with this person. Develop friendship with that person. Demonstrate to them that you genuinely love them, you genuinely care about them. So the side. What if you put a lot of time into somebody, you pray for them, 
God opens the door for you to give the gospel. You give the gospel to them. You might do it over a long period of time, and they finally just say, no, it's not for me. Hear this. You still love that person. Because, see, if we only love people in a utilitarian way, they'll catch on to that. No, we love people because they're made in the image of God, and we are people who love. And because we love them, we want the best for them. And the very best thing for them is to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But we still love them. And even if they reject and by the way, rejecting the first time doesn't mean they'll reject later. So you maintain the relationship with them. And then you choose a method for sharing the message. And by that, I just mean what I was saying earlier. Just uh, determine who this person is and therefore what needs to be emphasized and Go with the flow of the conversation as God opens it up. All right, we've got about three minutes left. As I say, in our next two weeks, we're going to look at how to begin conversations with people and then how to give the gospel to people that are in particular situations. I'm going to begin that portion, how to begin, give the gospel to people in particular situations with someone who's Roman Catholic. We live in an area with a lot of Uh, Roman Catholic folks. Some of you have Roman Catholic uh, family, uh, certainly co-workers and and neighbors. And so that's a large segment of people that we want to show the good news of, of the gospel. I'll talk about how to do that with them and some others, okay? All right. I was going to start that, but there's only two minutes left. So you're getting a bonus of getting done two minutes early. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could meet again now, having had this week off, but now to retrain our thoughts on this important issue of the good news of the gospel and your desire to use us as your ambassadors, your mouthpieces, your instruments in evangelism. Lord, help us because we love you, because we love the people that you have made, to then be people who are willing to overcome our natural faint-heartedness and hesitancy to, to give the gospel. Because you are glorious, because the gospel is beautiful, then help us to be willing to do this. To think of three people this week, to pray about those people, and then to look for open doors that you'll provide in order to give the gospel. Lord, as a result of our time over the semester, make us effective evangelists for you. We ask you to give gospel success. Only you can do that. We cannot, never could, force that issue. It only comes by your spirit. And so we ask you to draw people to yourself through the giving of your word. Go with us this week as we serve you. Keep us safe, we ask. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.